This audio presentation was pre-recorded and may have been edited for clarity and brevity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly Bright Focus chat presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm a former researcher and now the Vice President of Scientific Affairs at the Bright Focus Foundation. Today, we're going to talk about how to create a safe home environment when living with low vision. And so we have many patients on the call, but we also have friends and family of those patients. And we hope that this call will be helpful for all those people who have asked themselves, how can I help? If you'd, like a, if you'd like to submit a question at any time during today's call, please press star 3 to submit your question to an operator. And if it, for some reason you're disconnected from the call, I want to give you a number to call back in. That number is 877-229-8493. So that's 877-229-8493, and you'll be asked to punch in an ID code. That number is 112435. That's 112435. So our guest today is Jennifer Koldenberg, who is an occupational therapist at the New England Eye Institute and specializes in visual impairment. She's also a clinical assistant professor at Boston University and regularly publishes in occupational therapy and optometry journals. So I want to thank Jim for joining us today. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, so this uh, occupational therapy. So, what what is an occupational therapist in the context of low vision? What can you say about your profession that, that to let people know what they what they should expect to to gain from your services? Great. Um, simply, an occupational therapist is a healthcare practitioner who assists people across the lifespan to participate in the things they want or need to be able to do in low vision specifically. Occupational therapists assist people in learning to use their remaining vision to complete activities that are important to them or to teach compensatory strategies such as using um, organization, you know, putting your keys in the same place every day so that you, you don't get frustrated that you can't find them or tactile strategies such as using simple things like bump dots to mark an oven so you're able to identify 350 degrees on your oven or even if you can't rely on your vision, then maybe you can use your hearing, although sometimes that is also a problem, but we can use auditory strategies to complete um, the tasks that an individual wants to be able to do. So I, I think one of the things we can do today as we start off our, our conversation is maybe maybe break down all the, you know, as I walk into a home, there's just hundreds of things that I might see or do. But let's let's talk first about safety. And I, I know many people on the on the call might be concerned about tripping or falling. And I wonder if there are specific steps from your perspective that people with low vision might might take to avoid those falls in the home. Sure. Um, unfortunately, as one ages, there is an increased risk of falling or tripping. Um, and for those who have a visual impairment, they are even at a greater risk of falling. Um, but fortunately, there's a lot that can be done um, to reduce that risk. But that is through addressing the multi-issues that can create a fall, such as chronic health conditions, balance problems, 
sensory loss, such as hearing or vision impairment, um, acute illnesses, um, the environment, which we're going to talk a lot about, um, medications, the use of bifocal lenses, especially when using um, ambulatory aids, such as a walker, um, the footwear people wear, um, and even the adaptive equipment people use to reduce their risk of falls can actually create a fall. So some ways to reduce your risk is addressing those factors that we just talked about. Keeping active and eating right can reduce the risk of chronic health problems like stroke or hypertension or diabetes, um, but it can also improve your balance. There's a lot of research um, going on looking at Tai Chi and other exercises to reduce um, the risk of falling, especially with older adults. Um, with acute illnesses, such as urinary tract infections, um, you can it creates sort of an urgency. Um, so staying hydrated um, and discussing these issues with your physician may reduce the risk for rushing. And as we rush, that is when falls occur. Um, another thing that needs to really be addressed with um, their the individual's primary care physician is the medications people are on. Both prescription and over-the-counter medications um, really need to be discussed to reduce the chance of medication errors and medication interactions. And a lot of times people hear about, which I'm sure in future talks you're going to talk about multivitamins, um, especially with the ARED study, the age-related eye disease study, there are lots of vitamins that people can be on to um, slow the progression of macular degeneration, but those medica those um, vitamins can interact with prescription medications, so it's important that there is that discussion with a primary care physician. Other things such as, you know, wearing good footwear, I mean, it's, it kind of seems silly to talk about, but oftentimes people either like slip on just put on slippers, um, or even I have worked with many people who still wear high heels, and that can increase their risk of falling. Um, some of the other um, issues in terms of the environment and um, adaptive equipment, um, things that can really reduce the risk um, is improving lighting, um, removing throw rugs. Lots of people have throw rugs down, but oftentimes just walking through a room, you can catch the corner of a rug, which will increase your risk of falling. And if you can't see the edges of things very careful or very accurately, then that can increase, you know, the risk of kind of stubbing your toe on that corner of the rug and, and down you can go. Um, increasing contrast, so for example, being able to see the rise and the tread of a stair, if everything's the same color, then someone might not be able to identify sort of where a step begins and ends. Um, keeping walkways wide and um, void of any obstructions, um, as well as having the appropriate um, adaptive equipment, such as properly installed bath benches and grab bars. Oftentimes people have this equipment, but it's often not put in the correct position um, so that it could actually increase one's risk of falling. So having that properly installed um, can really um, be beneficial. So those are a few things. Sure. And I, I have to say, we uh, we reached out to some of our friends in the who have low vision. And of course, most low vision is actually age-related macular degeneration. And we asked them a few, a few of the questions of what helps them and what might be surprising to other people. And so, you know, it's really interesting to hear you talking about how good footwear might help with 
you know, you're with low vision, and staying hydrated might help. But so I'll throw out some of the other uh, ideas through the course of the call. Now, one of our uh, one of our friends suggested that you plan on carrying tote bags so that these tote bags might hang at your side rather than in front of you because when you're walking with something in front of you, she said that that obscures her vision. And so she's actually gone as far as to invest in a wheeled cart that she drags, drags behind her. One of the questions we have is specifically about about safety in a kitchen for for the low vision community. So what what's important to have there? If you walk into a kitchen, what are the first things that you're going to think about for for someone who has low vision? I, I certainly would want to ask what the activities that that person has to be able to do in the kitchen. There's lots of hazards in the kitchen. Um, for example, simple things like being able to safely navigate the stove and the oven. Um, simple things like being able to see the dial on you know, the temperature dial. So if, if someone has a hard time seeing that dial, then they're bending and twisting and turning to be able to get closer to the dial. And if there's things on the stove or if things are sticking out, then you're increasing the risk for, you know, a fall or an injury. A burn could occur very easily. So if an adaptation could be made so people could identify the the temperature on the stove without having to get closer could increase that safety. And a simple thing we utilize quite frequently is a bump dot, which is just a raised marking that we would put on, say, 350 degrees of the oven so that if you just turn the dial and you can either feel for the bump dot or if it's a you know high contrast color then you could just line up the the dial with the the marking so then from a distance you can set your oven more safely um so if i'm, if I'm sugar listening on the call where would i where would i find those bump dots what uh if i don't have an occupational therapist in my home is there can I, is this something i can get at a general store not necessarily a general store. However, you could get something similar at a general store. So there are, even on the, the um, resource list on um, the Bright Focus um, website, there are some resources for catalog companies that sell things like those bump dots, um, such as there's companies like MaxiAids that you could just Google um, and um, purchase on your own. But there's other things you could do, simple things even like nail polish. Or if someone is crafty, um, there's um, a product called Puff Paint, which you could purchase from any kind of craft store. Um, So there are other adaptations. Or even if you had a piece of Velcro, you could just cut a piece of Velcro and so you could feel feel that. So it's really just being able to either tactily identify or visually identify what that setting is at a safe distance. So is there anything else around the kitchen? You've talked about the stoves. Is there, you know, if we if we look around at the the sink or so the tiles, is there anything else you might uh you might point out for the for the for the callers? Sure. There's lots of um tricks of the trade kind of thing that you can do, things about like knife safety. So you don't um, want to be searching in cabinets for knives and things like that if you can't safely see them. So one of my clients that I worked with 
put knives on the back of the sink so when she was washing the dishes so she knew that never to like reach into the sink to clean them that she put them in the back so that was the last step she did to clean her knives even in the drawer she had a specific place so using those organizational strategies so that she knew exactly where they were so that she could be safe in either cleaning them or um, obtaining them other things to think about is putting items in locations that are easily accessible. So for example, if you use certain pots and pans on a regular basis, not having to reach bend, twist, turn to be able to get them, you know, have them at arm's length or, you know, put them in a, um, a, an area in your kitchen that's easy to navigate through um, and easy to access. Um, you don't necessarily want to be on your hands and knees to be able to find something in a cabinet. And that, you know, getting up and down off the floor can be harder as we get older. Um, so, you know, having things at easy arm, arms reach is good. Um, other things, using contrast can be very helpful. Um, for example, if you're having trouble with pouring liquids, which can be difficult. Contrast sensitivity decreases with macular degeneration and our ability to kind of see the foreground from the background gets a little bit more difficult. So simple things like pouring a cup of coffee. If you simply pour coffee in a white mug versus a dark mug, it's easier to identify, you know, sort of the level of the liquid as it's raising. Um, there's also um, little tools that can be used. There's a device called the Say When, which is a little piece of equipment that you simply put over the lip of the mug or whatever you're pouring into, and it has two metal prongs that hang down into the cup so that when you're pouring, when the liquid level hits those metal prongs, it plays a little music so you know to stop pouring. You could also use your finger for that, but if you're, you know, pouring for someone else, they may not want your finger in there. Um, or if it's hot, you wouldn't want to risk burning yourself with pouring hot liquids. Um, so that is a simple little tool um, that can, you know, help with pouring. Other things like high contrast for cutting, um, using, we often use a um, cutting board that's black on one side and white on the other so that you just use whichever side that is um, in contrast to whatever you're, you're cutting. Um, and that can be a simple um, way of being able to identify sort of where things are um, in space while you're, you're preparing things in the kitchen. So, I, so you're talking about making contrast better by using materials that make mm -hmm. contrast better. But any discussion of contrast kind of leads into a discussion of, of lighting. And I, I'm curious, so, you know, once again, if you're putting yourself into somebody's home, you know, what, what do you identify as being bad lighting? And what, what, what are the things that you can do to, to correct bad lighting in someone's house? Sure. And, and lighting is crucial for anyone over the age of 40. And I always say when I'm working with other therapists um, or when I'm, you know, working with clients is that if there's one thing that I can do to help is to improve the lighting. Um, so, but it's a little complicated and it's not as simple as increasing, increasing the wattage of the bulb. In fact, that's often not the issue. 
the closer the light is to the object which the viewer is trying to, to look at, the brighter it is. So, for example, when someone is reading, having a floor gooseneck lamp positioned over the shoulder and focused on the re reading material can really increase both the visibility of the print and also the brightness of the light. So the closer... When you sure, say gooseneck, that's that's one of these lights that you can kind of bend the neck of a little bit and direct the direct the angle of the light. Is that what you're talking about? Correct, and that will allow the the fixture to become closer to the object that someone's looking at. So the book, the magazine, whatever. So the closer the light gets, the the easier it is to see, and the brighter the light is. Um, so yes, having that flexibility um, is really important. Um, when we're talking about lighting fixtures, especially when we're talking about reading and writing tasks. Well, I want to remind people that if they have any questions, and everyone everyone here lives someplace, so if you have any questions about your own home and things that might be done, or even, even comments you have about things that you do that other people might want to know about, hit star three, and I'll take you out of the call briefly to a, an operator who will take down your take down your question and forward it over to us. As I said earlier, we had some. Uh, we we went out to some of our friends, and they for for ideas about how to um, things that they do that help. And one of the one of our friends said that that their goal is to never have to walk through a dark room. So they've used stick-on lights. So these are these are plastic lights that have adhesive on the back that they can put in hallways and. Uh, in in sort of problem areas of their homes, and they these lights have a have a pressure switch that you hit with the palm of your hand, and they turn on and turn off once you you hit that again again. So that's something that uh, that people might might consider. So, uh, Jen, um, one of the questions that that comes up, and it came up from a from one of our callers actually, as we move into the the question and answer session, one of ours questions was uh, Paulette from North Carolina asking how can how can she get low cost or free aids and I think there's a larger discussion here about you know where does insurance cover the cost and you know at a general at a general level maybe we can't answer the question for North Carolina specifically but you know what are the first steps someone should take to understanding where where there might be low cost or whether or not insurance might cover these sorts of devices in their in their communities Sure. So generally, um, most, for example, most of my clients have Medicare, and that's that's their primary insurance um, company. And Medicare does not reimburse for low vision devices as as of today. Um, maybe that will change in the near future, but um, not as of today. But other insurance companies may um, cover some low vision devices and oftentimes that is on a um, you know uh, person by person basis and that would be something that they would have to inquire with their their insurance company for example I'm in Massachusetts and um, some of the company's vision service plans um, may have some coverage but it's prior approval but also our um, mass health which is um, our Medicaid does cover low vision devices, so it, it is by sort of a 
state-by-state basis. So you'd have to um, look at that in terms of insurance companies. But there's other resources within communities that can certainly um, be looked into. For example, Easter seals, they often have um, low vision device or assistive technology programs that are available to consumers. Um, Lions Club International um, has some some great uh, benefits for people. It's a um, sort of by region kind of request, um, so you'd have to look at look into that. Um, Local commissions for the blind, so your state commission for the blind, often has resources available, most typically for people who have been deemed legally blind, but some do have low vision resources as well. Um, And local associations for the blind, they often have um, some resources available for low cost or free um, low vision devices, but you would have to um, contact them. They often are great resources as well um, for local um, agencies that may have support. And also on the Bright Focus um, website, there are some resources listed under the Low Vision Resource List for um, some programs that are available um, on a national level. Well, so that's certainly a a lot of information to throw out, and I want to remind people that we always make uh, recordings of these conversations, and also we post transcripts on our website. So you can visit our website at brightfocus.org backslash past chats, and you can download those transcripts and actually re-listen to the recording if if that's your interest. You can also listen to our archive recordings on the telephone by calling 1-773-572-3164. That's 1-773-572-3164. Or you can just simply call us at 1-800-437-2423, and our operators would be happy to get a print copy of any transcripts back out to you. So all of these ideas that we're talking about today, you don't have to sit down and write them down today. We can get that to you at a, at a later date if you just call us in. That number again is 1-800-437-2423, or visit our website at brightfocus.org. So that is .org, that's an O-R-G. Okay, let's go to some of the questions. Um, so one one question we have we have Dorothy in Maryland calling in and asking if moving a chair two to three feet closer to the TV will that be detrimental to her eyesight? Oh, gosh, I, I I remember hearing that even even growing up. I remember my mom telling me you know move move back you know. So uh, so so what would you tell Dorothy? Dorothy, no worries. You can move as close to the TV as is comfortable for you. There is no health, um, you know, there used to be discussion about radiation from the television. None none of that, um, you know, getting closer is not going to impact um, your vision. Um, The only thing is, if you are living with someone, that you might get in the way by being closer, but it doesn't hurt to be closer to the TV. That's actually the easiest solution to make the image look bigger. Um, So it's perfectly fine. Well, Mom, if you're on the phone today, I I hope you heard that. (laughs) Uh, uh, So one of the things that have come up from from several questions uh, is the idea of electronic devices. And so the 
for starters, we had Wilma from California asking if there's visual aids to put over a computer screen to aid in, in reading the Internet, or even software, I might add, that might, uh, that might help with, with reading, reading the Internet. Sure, and there's lots, lots of resources available in terms of electronic um, technology, depending on what type of computer you have. If it's an Apple or a PC, um, it it uh, it does matter matter a little bit in terms of the internal accessibility features. Oftentimes, the simplest adaptation that you can make to a computer is by reducing the resolution of the screen, you actually increase the size of the font. Um, by asking your friendly OT in your area, they can help you with those kind of things. But there's lots of different devices out there. There are magnifiers that you could put in front of a TV or a computer screen. The problems with those are often the type of optics that they use for magnification, it actually degrades the image a little bit. It gets a little bit blurry. It's bigger, but it's a little bit blurry. Um, so some of those magnifying screens aren't, um, may not be the best solution. But there's all kinds of software and also internal accessibility features that can make using the internet or the computer um, much easier and more accessible um, for anyone, really. Um, and you're, we're seeing lots of technology um, advancements. Um, for example, um, I'm actually doing a study this fall looking at using the iPad um, for lots of different daily activities. And there's many applications that you can obtain for the iPad. For example, they have um, apps that are color identifiers. So if someone can't identify the color of the clothing in their, in their closet, there's a little app that you just add to your phone or your iPad and the phone will tell you or the iPad will tell you what color that item is. Um, and there's money identifiers. There's lots of different applications. So technology is really expanding quite quickly. Um, so there's lots of things that are available. And, and there are many practitioners out there, occupational therapists. There's um, professionals from the, the rehab blindness field. For example, they're at, often at commissions for the blind throughout the country, there are trained people out there that can help people learn to use this technology uh, to assist them in their daily activities. Well, thank you. I, I have to say, you know, that, that went right into a question that we had from Barbara from California, who was asking, you know, beyond, beyond computers, you know, what other electronic devices are helpful to those with low vision? And so you briefly touched on maybe these new tablets we have, and we have smartphones that have built-in cameras, and they have really amazing capabilities. Are there less well-known uh, electronic devices that, that people might be interested in for their daily activities? There's lots of different um, devices out there that may like, individually do some of the tasks I was just talking about with the applications, but we're kind of seeing a, a, a change in um, or a trend towards using a single device that has multiple uses to it. Um, but there are devices out there that um, 
like read UPC labels on items in the grocery store and that can tell you, you know, what that item is and what the ingredients are, those kind of things. There's money identifiers. There's all kinds of different devices that can do single um, tasks. But we're seeing this shift to kind of using technology more like smartphones that have applications that could do multiple things in one device versus having, you know, a single device for a single task. So I, for people who might not have an OT in their area, you know, what, how, would you tell, how would you tell someone to, to find out about, about these devices or about uh, places in their area that might, might be able to sell, sell the device or even Internet resources where they might be able to buy the device, such as you know, maybe even Amazon or one of these popular, popular vendors on the Internet. So for, for someone who doesn't have an OT, where do they go? Sure. I mean, I think that great, the first steps are really like commissions for the blind in their state or local associations for the blind, because those um, services really specialize in working with consumers who have a vision loss. Um, So they do know those local and national resources and also can steer people in the right direction. And I just kind of want to put a caveat into here is that, you know, oftentimes purchasing things without, um, for example, having a low vision examination can actually be um, not harmful, but could slow down sort of the, the process of adapting to vision loss because without having a low vision examination, you're, you may not be determining, for example, the right magnification that is required for your specific um, condition or your specific vision impairment. So um, the low vision specialist can oftentimes find um, the power that's required for that, that person to be able to do the activities they want to be able to do. And if we, if we miss that step, then sometimes people buy the wrong wrong device and then get frustrated and think that if this doesn't work, nothing will work. But if we start with finding the right tool for the right task, then, you know, we're starting out on the right foot with success so that um, it's a more positive start um, to adjusting to vision loss. Well, let's move on to a uh, to another question here. We have Mr. Fulton from California who's asking, where do you get reading glasses prisms? And so maybe you might have addressed that a little bit about where to get these things. But, you know, for the, for the callers who don't know what a prism is or what it's doing for low vision, what are they? And then secondly, where, where do we get those? Sure. And prisms have, there's multiple types of prisms and they're used for a variety of things. Um, But prisms that are used in reading glasses often are used to help people focus at near. So as we get older, um, when presbyopia hits and that arm is not long enough, it's because our flexibility of our eyes, it's harder to focus at close up. And the closer we have to bring things, um, for those who are using reading glasses, oftentimes that helps us, you know, bring things up closer so we're able to read. But when we have low vision, 
you often have to bring it even closer. And by bringing it closer, it actually enlarges the image. But but prisms are used to help bring those eyes together so we can focus at near. Hopefully that was clear enough in my explanation. Um, so prisms are a prescriptive optical device. So those are obtained through most often a low vision optometrist. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's look at, I, I wanted to, tell you about some of the things that other people had had written in to us about to tell us that they use in their homes. One uh, is that broken or uneven sidewalks, patios, and decks are difficult to see, and your community may have resources to help deal with these. Uh, we had another another uh, comment coming in that it's saying when you're when you're in a new place and you have low vision, you may, you may have to go up and down stairs, and it's helpful for her to ask ask whether not just the number of stairs but whether or not they are all the same size and height because sometimes you get tricked and uh, sometimes a, a stair may not be the uh, the height you thought we had uh, we had another question talking about colored key holders that are helpful so we all carry around a whole bunch of keys in our pockets and from hardware stores, you can get these little plastic covers that go on keys that have bright colors on them. And that's been very helpful for, for this person to, to figure out which, which key goes to, goes to which lock. We have a, a comment from Ellen from Massachusetts, and it's not a question, but she's saying that we need to develop better and simpler equipment for people who suffer from AMD. And she wants to see more, more user-friendly and more effective, uh, more effective devices. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're in the research field. Where, where, do, where are the trends? What do you see people doing to, to make sure that, that the equipment doesn't re require a user manual and that that user manual doesn't come in 10-point font to the, uh, you know, to the person with low vision who's trying to use it? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and and I really appreciate that comment, and and it, it it's true is that, you know, sometimes you need, you know, a training manual for for these these things, and and it, I think the biggest lesson is that, oftentimes, assistive technology requires training, and that doesn't necessarily occur everywhere, and that's where I'm hoping that there is a change where. People who have a vision loss do get referred for rehabilitation so that they get the training so that it matches, the devices match the needs of that individual, and then that individual then learns how to utilize the equipment, but also to, you, to understand how vision loss is impacting them today, and then learn those skills so that they're able to adapt if things change down the road. Without that rehabilitation piece, it, it, you, they're really missing um, sort of a lot of hope um, and a lot of help with that adjustment to vision loss. Um, in terms of technology, though, we are seeing a shift from the more more historically, we we saw lots of different magnifiers being used, and individual 
devices for very specific tasks. Now we're seeing more of that electronic magnification, so um, reading machines, um, things that can adapt over time. But we're also seeing a lot more computer adaptations, um, tablet technology being used. Um, although there's no research really looking at the outcomes of that. So hopefully we see um, that coming along as well. Um, but maybe it's just too new. Okay. Well, we'll we, we certainly all hope to see these things. We know that uh, we know that the, those complications are easy to easy to look over by the people who are otherwise well intended. We we certainly look at things like the labels on on medications. Well, you know they're they're often written at very very tiny fonts, and so mm-hmm. you know, where 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 we can, the Bright Focus Foundation helps in uh, in in. Reprinting some of these things, but uh, but you know there's certainly a lot of work work to be done in that area. So uh, one thing I want to remind people is we if you do have a question, hit star three, and that'll take you briefly out of the conversation to an operator who will take down your call. We are trying to keep from. Uh, we are trying to keep to questions that are about the, uh, along our theme of safety in the home. So more therapeutic questions that are about specific drugs or medical procedures, we're either gonna, we'll, we'll save for another another time, or we'll we'll get back to you in some in some way. So one of the uh, one of the questions that's on a lot of people's mind is driving. What can you tell us about about driving with low vision and uh, what what's sort of the process that you that you take with a patient when they came come in and say I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing and but what what's out there to help me, you know, either test myself or or make things easier. Sure, and that's a really hard um, discussion, and it's also a really hard decision um, for people. And I think that there are some sort of regional changes or, or differences between if you live in an urban community versus a rural community and, you know, access to um, alternative transportation. Sometimes if there's alternative transportation, it's an easier retirement from driving. But when someone lives in a more rural community, that discontinuing or retirement from driving may also, um, in their mind, mean, you know, more social isolation, not being able to get out, you know, being more homebound. Um, so really, it's, it's, um, it, it is a difficult discussion to have. And depending on where you are in the country, driving requirements do vary state to state. Um, for example, in the state of Massachusetts, we have three different driving licenses. So we have in, in a standard, just like an automo- automobile driving license. So we have a, um, an unrestricted driver's license. We have a daytime restricted driver's license, and we have a bioptic driving license. So the the restricted and the bioptic um, directly relate to um, low vision. So oftentimes, like looking within the state and what the requirements are, but I often have the discussion with my clients, um, sort of that what-if discussion, um, because there's lots of circumstances where your vision is impacted by the environment. For example, in on a very sunny day, um, the oftentimes 
older adults and also those with a vision impairment, if there's a very bright light that your the the time it takes the eye to adjust to that bright light gets longer the older we are. And on top of that, having um, a retinal condition, this can impact your ability to see the environment for a period of time. And it's those what ifs. What if a child crosses the street, you know, running after a ball, or if there's a pedestrian, or if there's a bicyclist? So I often have that discussion um, with my clients on, you know, how would you feel? You know, you kind of need to think about, you know, your safety and your ability to um, drive safely. But there's also the discussion and our, my responsibility, I feel, to discuss those alternatives to driving, looking at community resources, oftentimes um, councils on aging. So your local town may have a council on aging. So they might have volunteers that drive people to doctor's appointments or the grocery store. You might have a local um, bus that um, can pick people up from and do door-to-door kind of service. So it's really exploring those community resources is really important. But councils on aging can be very helpful there. Um, But also, if people want to drive on those restricted driver's license, I often refer them to driving rehab programs so that it tests their ability um, and safety in the automobile, not only their, you know, knowledge about driving, but also on the road safety. Um, In my role, I don't do on the road training with people, but I refer out to other OTs that do that um, so that they really can kind of see, like, are they really safe um, driving with their current vision or the status of their vision? It, it's, such a, it's such a hard question that people struggle with, and we, we, we have some thoughts on it that we'd, we'd love to help send out to you. If you're interested, we have a, a brochure called Safety and the Older Driver that we offer through the Bright Focus Foundation. You can get it through our website at brightfocus.org or that telephone number I gave earlier, 1-800-437-2423. I think we have time for one more question, and we have Diana in Maryland asking, if we move back indoors, how about glare control? Do you have any glare control recommendations for dealing with natural light? I know in my office I have these you know beautiful morning sunshine, but man, when it when it hits a computer screen or something reflective, it's just impossible to see things. So what what do you tell people to do about glare for natural light? Sure. Glare is a huge problem. And and we talked about lighting earlier, and I said if there's one thing we can do is improve lighting. But lighting is complicated because as we increase lighting, we have the potential of increasing glare both in you know indoors and outdoors but there's oftentimes I am working with clients to find a filter so that's a um um a fit over like a pair of sunglasses but specifically um designed to address glare indoors so they can fit over glasses or you could just wear you know these glasses um and oftentimes um Specific colors of filters can help not only reduce the glare, but can also increase contrast. For example, um, yellow filters um, can really um, improve contrast, but sometimes it also brightens things. So for glare control, sometimes for some people it's very helpful. For other people, they may think it's a little brighter. 
in my experience, for my clients um, with macular degeneration, a light plum color filter really was, in many of the clients I worked with, they thought that was a great comfortable color that just kind of cut out the indoor glare. Um, For outdoors, it was probably too, um, didn't block out enough light. But for indoors, that light plum um, was very helpful. But again, if they, if the, the client wanted to address glare, they could work with their low vision optometrist or ophthalmologist to find a color um, that would be effective um, indoors and then also outdoors. Outdoors usually is a much darker um, filter, um, but I've often seen that light plum or yellow um, be very effective. Well, that's uh, that's about all the time we have today. I just uh, I just want to thank you so much, Jen, for taking the time to speak with speak with us today, and uh, thank you to everyone who joined the call and asked questions. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be posting the recordings and the transcripts of the call on our website. You can also listen to and download these past chats on iTunes and SoundCloud, uh, or you can call us in, call in to us at 1-800-437-2423, and we can give you other ways of getting hold of those transcripts or past, past recordings. Our next chat will be on Wednesday, September 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Pacific. We certainly encourage you to register early, and we can send you a reminder email about the uh, about that call. And if you'd like to register for that chat right now, you can do so and at the same time request free low vision materials like our Amsler grids by calling Bright Focus again at 1-800-437-2423 or visiting our website at brightfocus.org. We'd like to find out a little bit more about you as listeners and make sure we're providing information that's most helpful to you. And we're, we're going to ask you one short question, which you can answer using the keypad on your telephone. And the question is quite simple. How long have you had macular degeneration? So if you were just diagnosed, pressed 1. If you've had macular degeneration for many years, pressed 2. And if you're on the call today for a friend or family member and you're, you don't personally have macular degeneration, press three. So that's one if you were just recently diagnosed, two if you've been living with macular degeneration for many years, and three if you're on the call today because you're helping out someone else, a friend or a family member. So the Bright Focus chats are held on a monthly basis, and to find out more about upcoming coming chats, just give us a call or check our website for updates. Thank you, everyone, for your feedback, and if you'd like to leave a comment after the call, just stay on the line. Thanks, and from all of us at Bright Bright Focus Foundation, have a great day. Thank you so much. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.